All right, good morning. All right, we're back in the book of Hebrews this morning. And got me a new cover here. I got to figure out how to get it to work. It's magnetic. It's sticking to the pulpit. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. That's good. All right, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're with us. Uh, if you're new with us, we are just traveling through the book of Hebrews. And so today we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 4. Um, I will pray for us, and then we'll get started looking at the passage together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the opportunity to examine and see you on the pages of Scripture. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. You would incline our heart uh, to your testimonies, and that, God, you would unite our heart to fear your name, and then satisfy us, God, with your loving kindness, that we would be glad all the day long. God, we want to see Jesus. We pray you would help us and guide us through this study, help us to understand and process and follow along what it is that the, the writer you inspired here uh, has to communicate to us through your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a, an old saying that goes, there's no rest for the weary. There's no rest for the weary. I looked that up, found a couple definitions for that. It said, quote, this describes a situation in which a tired person has to do more work. Even people who are worn out must continue to work. Another definition said, you must keep persevering no matter how tired or overworked you are. There is no rest for the weary. Do you feel like that? Do you feel worn out? Do you feel tired, exhausted, even maybe coming back from vacation, feel exhausted from being on vacation, right? Feel like there's no, no rest for the weary. Know that we live in a culture uh, that we call, we call it utilitarian, okay? It's a utilitarian culture. And that means, what that means basically is that our value as human beings and our culture is placed upon what we do for the greater good. Our worth is really only wrapped up in our, in our culture uh, in what we can accomplish for our, our, our people around us. This obviously makes subjects like rest or stillness or even the word used here is Sabbath in our passage makes these topics enemies um, of such thinking for they are seen as a waste of time, right? In a culture that's all about what you can accomplish and do, you talk about rest and stillness and Sabbath and you're like, well, those those are worthless. Those are a waste of time. We can't get anything done by doing those things. But whether our, our culture presses us into this restless mode or not, uh, we do know theologically we would be in this mode anyway. Every human being who is walking or has ever walked this earth has encountered a deep sense of restlessness. You're not alone if you have this feeling today. We were born restless. We live our lives restless. We experience uh, restlessness really to our deathbed. And there's no amount of breathing exercises or medications or diets or religious activities that can solve that problem. The solution is the same solution we find in every passage of Scripture. The solution to our problem is in the person and work of Christ. Augustine put it this way back, way back in the 4th century. He said, you have made us for yourself, speaking of God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But this begs the question, how do we do that? <laughs> how, do, how do we find our rest in Jesus? And, and what exactly does that rest look like? And he, here's what the writer of Hebrews is going to say. Because the, the readers of this letter in Rome some 2,000 years ago, they thought they had just missed the boat of rest that God was offering. Right? They thought they, they'd missed out on it. 
And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, look, guys, you haven't missed the boat. You haven't missed the boat. God's rest is still offered to you today. It is available, and you can find rest for your soul in Jesus. But there's a warning here, right? Don't repeat history. And what is that? Don't repeat the history of slapping God's hand away when he offers you rest. Receive it. Take it. It is offered to you today. You say, now why in the world would these guys who were reading this letter for the first time, why would they think they had missed God's rest? Why, why, why do they think they, they missed that? And it's the same reason you may feel like you've missed it. It's because their lives felt like anything but restful. They're running around like chickens with their head cut off. You ever seen that before? Actually, I have seen that. I did grow up on a farm. You may not have known that, but I did in Virginia. And when you chop chickens' heads cut off, they actually do run around with no head. It's fascinating. Um, But that's what these guys are running around for, right? They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. They're scrambling for their lives. Um, they, They felt like a bunch of roaches hiding out in the dark, and the lights came on. They went screaming and running in every direction, right? That's kind of what they felt like in their lives, their family is hating on them. Their friends are hating on them. And ever since they come to believe the gospel, ever since they come to Jesus, things have gone from bad to worse. So you understand, right? They're like, this isn't very restful. <laughs> this doesn't feel like anything like rest. What kind of rest is this? Needless to say, their experience of Jesus was not living up to their expectations. I don't know what they thought. I don't know if they thought Jesus was gonna, what Jesus was going to do with them. I don't know if they, he wasn't like he was going to give them. I don't know if they thought he was going to give them like puppies and, and uh, two scoops of ice cream and some butterfly kisses or something. I'm not sure what they thought, if it would just be smooth sailing, you know, after that. But they felt like things just didn't add up, right? Things just didn't add up. They didn't feel rest. They felt restless. Is that you? And you think about, man, I'm, a, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but it's just, it's just getting harder and harder and harder. You know what they felt like? You know who they identified with? They identified with a, with, with a group of people, all right? And that group of people they identified with, we call them the wilderness generation of people of the Israelites. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, they were the group of people who came out of Egypt, right? God rescued them. They're in the wilderness, and they're wandering around for 40 years. They felt restless. They felt, it felt like life was pointless. They didn't see much of a future. They weren't quite in the promised land yet. That's who they identified with. And that's who the writer brought up in chapter 3 of Hebrews, and that's who the writer brings up here in chapter 4. It is a vital story for us to learn from. And God's going to take that story, that story of the wilderness generation, and he's going to lay it on top of our lives. He's going to lay it on top of these guys' lives, and and he's going to point out some things. He's going to say that there's some similarities here. And there's some dangers we need to watch out for. And there may be things we need to repent of as we reflect on their lives, their story, and make sure we don't repeat history as they did. They were restless. And if you repeat their patterns, you too will be restless. And ultimately, there's a restlessness that even leads to hell itself. Complete restlessness away from God forever. Now before we jump in to this passage, you just heard it read. And you may be very confused by reading it. I just heard it read again and thought, man, this passage is interesting. <laughs> so if you read it, here's, here's why this passage is difficult to understand. And I need to kind of set some things up for you. The writer uses the word rest a lot. Did you hear that when he was reading? Um, but he def- his definition for rest is used three different ways. And that's the hard part about this passage, okay? So let's define some of those. He uses it eight times, 11 verses. He uses them three different ways, and I'm going to try to point them out as we go along, okay? First of all, he uses rest to refer to, I'll call it a bodily rest, okay? Bodily rest. This is 
physical, emotional, social rest. We find this in chapter 4 here, verse 3, in reference to the physical promised land. Okay? Uh, it was a place where they'd be free. right? They'd be free from physical and emotional slavery. This practically refers to things like sleep and rest and stillness um, of our bodies. There's another way he uses the word rest in this passage, and this is the primary way he uses it, okay? We'll call this a spiritual rest. This is a deeper rest that only comes from God. It's a kind of peace, you may want to call it, and a relationship with God. It's also in chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, This rest is also an active rest, okay, like God's in chapter 4, verse 4. It's the ability to lay things down like God did back in creation. It's being completely at rest with who God is and who God has made you to be. It's that kind of rest, okay? And so God's the ultimate one who is at rest in who he is. We had this before before the fall, but then we lost it, right? We lost our identity, and as a result, we have to go about our lives, spending our lives trying to prove ourselves to others in hoping to find that identity once again. Thus, there's never enough stuff, right? Never enough uh, things to do, never enough people to talk to, enough things to entertain us, enough time in the day, and thus our souls are restless. This is the current rest the Christian experiences when God is at home in their hearts. This rest is not circumstantial, okay? Meaning Christians can experience this type of rest despite what storms may be brewing around them. It's a deep soul rest despite the outward maybe restlessness of the circumstances. That make sense? Okay, so we're going, going to this one. There's a third one used in this passage. Okay, we have a kind of a physical rest, a spiritual rest. And there's a third kind of rest that's used, and that's a, the, uh, we'll call it eternal rest. Okay? There's a future rest when we die who are in Christ, and that's called heaven, also called a, a new, he- new earth uh, is also referenced there. You see this in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And here's the thing. Okay, I know I'm going to keep, uh, please hang with me, okay? And this passage is difficult, okay? There's an already not yet aspect to this, okay? What do you mean by that, Chris? An already, there's an already aspect to a future rest. We already taste a little bit of it. We, we sense a little bit of it, but there's a completeness coming one day, right? So we can already taste a little bit of heaven now. We, know, we, we get a feeling a little bit of that, being in relationship with God. We have little glimpses of that that we feel. But there's a future rest, a fullness of rest that is coming. And so the author, what the author is getting at here is that there's a physical rest that about anybody can get, right? Just, just get some sleep, get some rest. But there is a rest underneath that rest that only comes from God, a spiritual rest. It only comes from Him that has an already not yet aspect to it, that has a future aspect and a time now. So we can experience it now, but we fully experience it on the new earth, eternal rest. And so the current rest is subjective, subjective and conditional based upon our faith and trust in God. He'll get to that in a minute. And as Christians, we fail to experience this rest and peace when we fail to believe the gospel as presented to us. And listen, the, all these three aspects are connected, okay? Unless you're sure, for example, okay? Unless you're sure you have eternal rest, that you know without a shadow of a doubt if you die today, you're in the presence of God immediately. Unless you're sure of that, you can never really experience this spiritual rest, this peace, right? Because you're never settled, you never know. And if you don't have spiritual rest, you can't really have ultimate physical rest. They're intertwined, they're connected, Okay? So here's what we're going to look at today. You're going to follow along and pay attention. We're going to work hard on this passage, okay, to help you understand it. There's three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the enemy of rest, the way to rest, and then the invitations, plural, to rest. Okay. Number one, the enemy of rest. 
We're going to move around this passage to help you better understand. So we're going to jump all the way to verse 10. Okay, back down to verse 10. What's the enemy of rest? Verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, the, the writer's talking about here the spiritual rest, and rest number two we talked about. That deep soul rest, where one, one rests from works. Now, what works is he talking about? Okay? It's, I love about this writer. You've got to constantly define what he's talking about. What, what kind of works is he talking about? It, do we not work anymore? Like, what is, he, what is he talking about? And the Bible is filled with commands to work. Um, even though the command to work was around before sin ever even entered the world back in the beginning of Genesis. Matter of fact, on the new earth, if you study the new earth and heaven, what that's going to be, we're going to work there too. So work is, there's nothing wrong with work. God's not calling us not to work. Ephesians even tells us that we were created uh, in Christ Jesus for good works. So, so, but is there something wrong with working hard at your job? No. Is there something wrong with working hard on relationships? Is there something hard, is there something bad in working hard to be like Jesus? Not at all. That's not bad. But is there a way to do those things that is restless and a way that is restful? Yes. There's a way to go about those things that's restful and a way to go about those things that's restless. And it all depends on what you do with the gospel. You see, it's restless when your work, your effort, is self-justifying. And I would argue that most of your work and most of my work are attempts at self-justification. What justification, what does that mean? It means being declared right, being declared okay, being acceptable in the eyes of another. Ultimately, we talk about justification with God. It's being acceptable to God. But here's how this works in relationships. Let me give you, let me explain this. Okay, it starts as a child. You work hard to justify ourselves in trying to please our parents. Then we work hard to justify ourselves in, in looking cool to our friends. And, and, and we get older, we work hard as guys to, you know, to justify yourselves in trying to be charming to the ladies. You know, guys, you start with like taking a shower, brushing your teeth, deodorant, 9 out of 10 right there. Right? You, you accomplish a lot just by doing that. For the ladies, you work hard, justify yourself when you're younger, you know, trying to look pretty and attractive to the guys. Then we justify ourselves in trying to get good grades, and we justify ourselves in trying to get a good college. We justify ourselves in getting a good job, and to justify ourselves to keep the job, to justify ourselves to get a good spouse, justifying ourselves to have good, well-behaved, smart, non-delinquent, athletic, musical kids. Then we justify ourselves, this is sad though, then we justify ourselves through living vicariously through our kids because we realized we didn't really justify ourselves when we were that age, so we got to live through them. We justify ourselves with the image we portray to colleagues and friends, to justify ourselves with, the, with, uh, with what we possess, to justify ourselves and what we have to retire on, to justify ourselves to death. You feel, you feel how tiring that is? Just constantly having to prove yourself, to make people feel like, okay, am I okay with you? Are you okay with me? Am I good enough for you? Right? That's, that's what I'm talking about. We talk about restlessness. It's that idea of self-justification. And as a result, we live in a restless nation full of restless people. And even there's restless churches where most claim to be Christians. And as a result, the world looks at that version of Christianity. And you know what they go? They go, no, thank you. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm plenty restless enough. I don't need to add some more, more church activities to my list. Of already, I'm already exhausted. I'm already trying to prove myself to everybody else. I don't need a new pool of people to prove myself to. Why do they not see the appeal of Christianity? Because many people, including many in this church in Hebrews, take that self-justifying attitude out in the world, and they just come to church, and they mix a little Jesus into it. You know what happens then? 
You add to your self-justifying work on your job and your self-justifying work at home and your self-justifying work in your relationships out in the world. You add to that self-justifying work in the church and self-justifying service, self-justifying giving, and self-justifying work on praying, and self-justifying work on reading your Bible, and you become exhausted and restless because you're just adding more and more and more to the list. No wonder people walk away from Christianity, in quotes, because it, was, it wasn't ever really Christianity anyway. It was just self-justifying religion. And that's why people look at it and go like, I don't want anything to do with that. True Christianity, the gospel, we, we believe as we look at that, it means Jesus brings rest because it's all about being justified by faith, justified without having to lift a finger. It's about Jesus uh, saying it is finished. Only the gospel gives you true rest so that you enjoy your work. You enjoy your labor for Jesus and out in the world because you don't need to justify yourself anymore. You're justified by Jesus, and that's the only opinion that really matters in the world. You see? It it radically transforms how you do everything else. This means, let me just be blunt with you for a second. This means what is separating many of you from God is not your sin. Just hang with me for a second. It's your damnable good works. It's not your sin, it's your damnable good works. Well, you say, what do you mean? Because when I I use the word sin, you define it just the wrong things you do. And you go like, well, I got a lot of good things I do, right? But really what's separating you from God is your reliance upon all these good things that you do. That's what's separating you from it. Those things you're seeking to justify yourself in. You can't put stuff down, right? Of course you repent of what is wrong. But the Pharisees did that, right, in the New Testament. And they were still restless people. We need to repent of the reasons we're doing everything we're doing right. No wonder religious people, right? This is why when people in the world look at you know, religious people, it's like they, they think they're taking shots of lemon juice, you know, a couple times a day. They look like, uh, this is Larry, Larry King, right? You guys, love, you guys love a little CNN in here, right? A little Larry King action. He is an avid Dodger fan, by the way, so I will give, I'll give him that. But, but that's kind of what they look at. They're like, oh, man, they're always just upset and angry and they're just bitter and all that because they're just self-justifying working people in the church, right? I love it. T.S. Eliot put it this way. He said, look, this is fascinating. Just one sentence. The greatest sin is to do all the right things for all the wrong, re- wrong reasons. The greatest sin is to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Listen, like ancient Israel, we too live in a wilderness and we're wandering. We're restless, trying to justify ourselves and find our identity in this world, trying to find rest apart from God. People do it just as hard in the church as people in the world, but neither will work and neither will bring rest. The enemy of rest is our vain attempts at self-justification. That's the enemy. Whether that be in the church or whether that be in the world, wherever that location may be, the place does not matter. Both are restless. This is why no amount of vacation or sleep can get you the spiritual rest because that self-justification meter is just always on, right? Even on vacation, you try to prove yourself. You, you wake up from a nap or from sleep, you're revving up to prove yourself to other people that you actually are worth their time and attention. This is important for the church to understand because they had anything but physical rest. The outside didn't feel like that at all. And if that's what they thought God was promising them was peace on the outside, that all the circumstances would be okay, then they thought wrong. And no wonder some of them were ready in the book of Hebrews. It explains why in the book of Hebrews they're ready to jump ship. They're ready to start swimming back to Judaism, right? I want to go back. Why? Because that was safe. That was predictable. I'm going to go back to that. I don't want to, this, this kind of thing with Jesus is not working out for me. Life is difficult. 
So we have the enemy of rest, right? Our, our vain attempts at self-justification. Let's look at, at the way to rest, okay? The way to rest. Verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering rest, his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should, should seem to fail to reach it. So the first way to rest, now this is going to be odd maybe sounding to you, first way to rest is fear. <laughs> You're like, that doesn't make any sense at all. All right, that's a very strange way to talk about rest, isn't it? Hey, buddy, how do you find rest in God? Be afraid. Be very afraid, right? It's like, God doesn't make any sense. But this is a healthy fear. Now, follow me now. This is a healthy fear of unbelief. He ended in chapter 3, right, verse 19, talking about this, this unbelief. We need this fear so that we don't wander off into this self-justification mode and restlessness, even in doing the Lord's work. It's almost like the writer is saying you have to have your radar up ready to detect any ounce of unbelief. Be fearful of its existence in your soul. Now, what's this fear like? Well, we know what it's like as children, right? When you're really little, right, your mom or your dad may say very firmly to you, right, don't you ever run out there in that street. You always hold my hand when we're crossing the street, right? They're very firm in that way. Why'd they do that? Because it's dangerous out there in the street all alone. As a little kid, you could be killed by a car, right? You need to stay with us. I remember one of my fellow pastors out in Los Angeles, and this is because it was always busy, right? Streets are always packed, and he had a couple little kids and a baby. Um, he would always have his older kids, in order to get the baby in the car seat, he would have the older kids stand on the car with their hands on the side, like this. And, and the, so if you drove by, they're in there putting the baby in the car seat, and there, there's Sean's kids standing up there against the car like this. It's like you're thinking, are they getting arrested? Or like, what's happening? I just imagine when they're in college, you know, they parallel park their car and they get out and immediately do this number <laughs> flashback you know or something just. so but fearing what could happen in the streets of healthy fear we would all say that's a good thing right it's a good fear to fear that you get by a car it's a good thing it's it doesn't paralyze you for life so that you, don't, you don't ever do anything because you're always scared about the possibility of being hit by a car out there on the street so this kind of fear actually is restful in a way because you know the dangers are out there and you're taking precautions to watch out for them uh, I may have told, I can't remember if I told you this story or not before, but when my kids were younger, um, I was teaching them how to ride their bike and, uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, it, it, you can imagine trying to you know, learn your bike out here is different. Learning your bike in the middle of Los Angeles downtown is, uh, it's, it's an adventure. And um, one day, as uh, they were learning, Cabe, I was on, my, I was on, I was on foot, now I learned better to be on my bike next time, I was on, on foot, and Cabe uh, decided to pick up speed, and he was uh, getting excited on his bike, and he's running, going, going, going. He picked up too much speed. And, uh, and as he picked up too much speed, he panicked. Legs went out like this, right? Hands on the handlebars, no foot on the brakes. The pedals are just going, shoo, there he goes, right into an intersection. You know, I'm, I'm like dying. My chest is like, my heart's not on my chest. I'm running as hard as I can. I'm yelling to put your feet on the brakes, you know, but he's, feet are all out like this, you know, running right, goes right into the intersection. You know, cars had stopped and all of that, so it worked out okay, right? But I was pretty firm when I got to him. I'm like, you need to pace yourself here, right? Keep your feet Go slow, keep your feet on the brakes, like don't, don't get out of control in this way, right? You have to pace yourself. Stop at every corner. And so then he had a fear of cars, right? A fear of the intersection, a fear of the bicycle, and prob- probably a little bit of fear of me in, the, in that process. Um, does that mean he never rode his bike again, right? Never again? Never gone on rides? No, matter of fact, in that story, the next week, we were out riding as a family again. We're riding around. This is when I'm riding around and tourists are taking pictures of us because it's me and four kids, you know, on a bicycle. And I guess they've never seen a dad with four kids before. Like LAPD cop pulls up and he's like, man, good job, dad. Way to go. You know, I'm like, I'm riding a bike with my kids. Come on. 
Um, but right around, but everywhere we got to an intersection, every time we'd get to one, we'd st- he'd stop. He was in the front of everybody. He'd be like, oh, oh, stop, guys, stop right here, hold on. And he would lead the group, and he was very cautious <laughs> about his speed and the intersection, and it was an enjoyable ride. It was a restful ride because of the fear of what could be there and the possibility of that. It was life-giving in that way. This is the way it is with the fear of unbelief. We don't live with a constant bad feeling about it. We only experience the bad feeling when there are temptations to distrust God's promises. And even then, you use the bad feeling of fear to send you running into the safe arms of God's goodness and promises. So normal Christian life is being aware of the fearful danger of unbelief. This does not mean you live paralyzed or terrorized by it. You live by faith. And fear only rises where faith starts to weaken. It only rises long enough to get us back into the restful fearlessness of faith. This is a good fear that always leads to trust. Okay, that's what we're talking about here with fear. Number two, trust. Okay, fear and trust. Look at verse two. Good news came to us just as to them, them being the wilderness generation. But the message they heard, what message did they hear? Remember, Remember the spies that went into the land and came back? Remember that story? That was the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So here we find uh, we have good news, right? We have gospel coming to us and coming to the wilderness generation. And the problem with the wilderness generation, which could be our problem too, is that we may believe, quote-unquote, but not trust the good news we are hearing. When we believe or just give assent to the facts, acknowledge the facts, but don't trust the gospel of Jesus, we're we're restless people. Now, what good news did the wilderness generation get? Well, the good news they got was there's an all-powerful God that loves us. And he's delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and is bringing them into a promised, beautiful land. And they believed enough, enough to walk out of Egypt. Remember, they believed enough to get out of that, to get freedom, but they didn't want to trust God with their lives. You see, Caleb and Joshua, they brought good news. If, I could, if you go back and read the story in Numbers, they actually called it a good report versus a bad report from the others. They all saw the same facts. They all saw the same people in the land. They saw all that stuff. But it says Joshua and Caleb brought good news or a good report that though there were tall people in the land, God was bigger. And as a result, the people of Israel would, would literally, their language was, would we'll, we'll swallow them up. Languages, they will be bread for us. In our language, it's a piece of cake, right? Oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. God's with us. You saw what we did in Egypt. We're good. We're, this land is ours, right? They were evangelized. They were good newsed, but they didn't trust that God was going to bring them rest. We, too, have seen great things. We, too, have been evangelized and seen the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And it's one thing to nod your head in assent and go like, I believe those facts, I believe that happened. It's another to trust God with our lives in light of those facts. But how does trust in Jesus, trust in the gospel, bring about rest? Let me give you a couple of real practical examples of how this works. First, it gives us rest from the guilt of our sins. Do not underestimate the power of of guilt, especially false guilt. I believe we carry more false guilt than we actually realize. False guilt meaning guilt that's not spurred on by the Spirit of God, but guilt brought about by our circumstances or by our culture around us. We have been forgiven, but we carry around this guilt and drive to want to make up for it somehow, when, in, when this really is a slap in the face of Jesus for saying that his sacrifice wasn't good enough, because we need to suffer too. We need to roll around in that a little bit. 
This makes you restless. But when you allow the sacrifice of Jesus to cover you completely, you find rest. Listen to Psalm 32, verse 5. This is a New Living Translation. I like the way they put it. It said, finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. He laid it all down. Second, trusting the gospel gives us rest in knowing that God is for us and not against us. Okay, go back to that wilderness generation for a second. They didn't think God was for them, right? They thought God had some cruel um, ulterior motive. That's why, he wanted, that's why they wanted to go back to Egypt. They felt like at least, at least the cruel plan there in slavery was a known factor. While walking by faith, believing in Jesus in the wilderness, you know, was an unknown factor. They'd rather go back to the predictable, cruel plan of Pharaoh instead of the unpredictable, cruel plan, in their mind, of Jesus. Same with the readers of this letter. They desired to go back to Judaism, which the writer is saying is just plain slavery, just like your past life. You know the pain of going back, but it's just, it's just predictable, right? It's safer. I, I know what it is. I know what religion. I know what, I know what things I need to do. And I can check the boxes. I know what my past life, what it offers. I know what results. I can just go there. I don't like the living by faith thing and trusting Jesus with my life. It's the same cycle that addicts go through. You fail to realize that Jesus is for you and not against you. That's what Romans 8.31 says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Thirdly, trusting the gospel allows, just, allows us to place our burdens and our lives on this God who loves us. Thus, we open up the door of our hearts. We talked about this in chapter 3 of Hebrews, right? Allow Jesus to move through every room. You've got access to every space. It's like a child who sleeps so well in, parent, in his parents' arms, so we rest in God. See, children can, can endure a lot in the world if they're certain that their parents are there with them and for them. And the reason we as Christians get restless is because we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, and we refuse to lay it down and give it over to Jesus. Now, a sense of pride, we refuse to kind of lay that down. That's why 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He gives the motivation at the end because he cares for you is the reason why we don't lay our anxieties on him. We fail to believe he actually cares for us. He actually can do something about it, that he actually wants to hear about it. You see? Trusting the gospel causes us to lay down our anxieties and our burdens on him. And so the Christian life is a life day by day, hour by hour, trust in the promises of God to help us and guide us and take care of us and forgive us and bring us into a future of holiness and joy that will satisfy our hearts infinitely more than if we forsake him and put our trust in ourselves and seek self-justification. It's a fight of faith every single day to find rest in Jesus. Lastly, the invitations to rest. Verse 3 says, for, for we who believed enter that rest, for he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. All right, the writer says that when we come to trust in Christ and we find our justification in him, we thus enter this rest, this deep soul rest, and we cease our efforts of self-justification. But the language implies that it's a continuous effort to believe this, isn't it? You know what this is like. We talk about the self-justification thing I mentioned earlier. You know, even as a Christian, you follow Christ, you still fall into like, I really need people's opinion to be good of me. I really need to look good. I want people to like me, right? I, I want to be approved by others, right? This is kind of that effort we still fall into. That's why God continually offers rest. That's why it's always available because we go in and out of it, right? We got to repent and come back again. 
That's why he quotes here from Psalm 95. And the point now in Psalm 95, this is very important to understand, the point is not rehearsing condemnation. It's not a threat here. He's telling the readers that rest is still available. It's still available. That's his whole point. He's quoting from that. It's God's rest, and he shared it, and it's not over. That's why he says, although his works were finished. Even though his works were finished, his rest is still offered to you. In other words, guys, the rest of God is still available. It's still open. This was important because no doubt some in the church thought the opportunity for rest again has gone, but it is available. It felt like rest had passed, and all that was left was basically hell on earth for them. But, the, but that rest is still available. Look at the invitations. Throughout this passage, the writer is telling us of all the different times in history where God offered rest to people, and it's still available today. The first one is all the way back at creation. Look at verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. So God offered rest, opened up access to himself for all of humanity, right? But God doesn't get tired. You're like, what is it? Why does he need rest? God never needs to rest. He never gasps for air, right? Like, like I do in my triathlon a few weeks ago, like 15 minutes in. Like, you know, I need, need rest. I need air. I need to breathe. Why does God rest if he doesn't need rest then? You ever ask that question? Like, why in the world is, what is it talking about? He's communicating something to us. He is weaving into the fabric of the universe how things are supposed to be. So literally from day seven, God is saying, hey, there's rest for you. There is a place where all the weight of the world can be removed. There is rest for you. Now, how large was humanity at that point? Every bit of one, okay? It was like, it was not very big, right? And, and, and God is offering rest to humanity in chapter, in, at the seventh day, he's offering rest. What hasn't happened yet? Sin hasn't happened yet, and yet God is offering rest. What does that mean? That means that communing with God and resting in God is not, is not just a solution to the fall, as we've talked about. It's who we were designed to be. We were designed to be at rest in God. But when Adam did sin, what did he do? Adam sinned. He tried to justify himself. He tried to make a name for himself. He knew better. He tried to carve out a niche for, niche for himself in creation without God. And thus Adam became restless. And then all of humanity after him became restless. And this is the, it's really the entire gospel story. The working of God in human history, bringing man back into the rest that he offered at the very beginning of creation. We are restless trying to find our rest in the created world when God is before sin ever came into the world, inviting us to rest in him. That's amazing. Now, because Adam refused that rest, right? Did God close the door? Did God say, fine, you know what, that's it. Out of the garden, shut the guard, put the guards up. You know, we're done. I'm not going to pursue you. I'm just going to leave you alone, let you die. Is that what happened? Did God close the door? No. As a matter of fact, every, after every day of creation, if you read this back in Genesis, it says what? Even, there was evening, right? And there was, there was morning, there was evening. It was morning, there was evening. Was there evening and morning on day seven? No. Why? What's he saying with that? Why is that important to the writer? Because it still exists today. That day is still open, right? It's still happening, as it were. God's rest is still available. You say, well, okay, what about that wilderness generation we've been talking about? Okay, look at verse 5. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not, shall not enter my rest. Again, this is Psalm 95, referencing that wilderness generation. And remember the guys, remember, remember what's happening. Those guys are wandering around the desert, right? And they're wandering around like, hey, this is fun. And we're going around in circles. And they come to the promised land, and they, and they come to the line, as it were, and they're like, nah, let's go back to Egypt. And God says, guys, but it's like, 
it's like flowing with milk and honey here. Like, this is a good place for you. And I know it doesn't mean a lot to us. I mean, think about it. It's a place flowing with, like, bacon and pie or something like that. Maybe that may connect the dots for you. But, oh, okay, now it's a good land. All right. Milk and honey, no. Bacon and pie, yes. And so God is like, hey, look, this is a place of healing, right? This is a place of rest. This is a place of belonging. Here it is. But because you don't trust me, you're not getting in. You, you can just be restless for the rest of your life. And that's why it's called the, the wilderness wandering. You really could call it the, the wilderness restlessness, right? They're just wandering around restless in their soul. And so at creation and at the brink of the promised land, God is offering rest, deep soul rest, justification in him alone instead of just self-justification. Yet we as a people, as humanity, refuse. Does God then close the door? Does he close the door and say, okay, I'm done with it? Nope. Look, at there's another offering here. The next generation entered the promised land with Joshua. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So here's this next generation of Israelites. Together with Caleb and Joshua, they enter the promised land. And Moses gets to see from a mountaintop, right, and dies. And Joshua takes over, right? But where do they go first? First place they go, Joshua in the battle of Jericho. Jericho. Come on, see him. I'm just kidding. Um, Mighty Jericho, right? It's where they go. They, and the scripture tells us that there was, they, they had no fight. It's kind of a funny story. You think about it. They had no fighting men and they had no weapons. And so Joshua prays and is like, God, what are we going to do with this, right? And God goes, do you have a marching band or something like that? And so there was, they were like 18 or something, you know, and they were more prepared to play music than go to war. Um, the, the only battle most men by the age of 18 have uh, experienced is Fortnite, and that doesn't count as a battle. So another story. So God's like, okay, good. You got, your, you got your band. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get dressed up like Florida Georgia Line, and I want you to, to, to place a banjo and a fiddle and a horn in their hands, and I want you to loop around this place about seven times. And I'm sure the people are going like, man, I really wish Moses was here with us. Man, this Joshua guy's going to get us killed. <laughs> We're all coming around with instruments around this, around this uh, walls. And so, so they, they do that, right? And the walls come down, everything falls, and this is great, right? And, and, the, and they enter in. And the promised land, if that was it, was that all? Was that rest? Was that the ultimate rest God promised was, was through Jericho and into the promised land? If it was, then the promised land would basically be a kind of mecca for Christians today, right? That's where you got to get. You got to get there. You just got to get. That's where you got to experience the rest of God is in that physical land. But that's not what he's speaking about. Because David was speaking in Psalm 95. He's the author of Psalm 95, where he is where he is at, he's centuries after Joshua in the chronological line, and God is still offering rest when David is speaking, and David, you know, it's outside of that story. So this rest is something deeper than land, right? It's got to be something deeper than land because it's still being offered. And so what about David's generation? Hundreds, hundreds of years later, look at verse 6. It remains for some to enter it, and though those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he points a certain day today Saying through David, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So here's David, hundreds of years later, after the story of Joshua and Jericho, writing about God's rest, right? Talking about the promised land. And yet he says, today, if you, if you hear, don't harden your hearts. This means that the rest was still available during David's time, despite all the disobedience that had occurred before but as he writes this, David is writing, his feet are literally planted in the promised land as he writes this. So clearly God had something different in mind than physical rest, right? There's something deeper than that, more than land, more than circumstances. So did David's generation enter God's rest? 
Well, together with his son Solomon, they reach the apex of wealth and comfort and peace. But David is still pressing them, despite all of that, to rest in God. They hadn't reached it. Soon after David, the kingdom split, right? And then the, the, went spiraling downwards away from God and his rest. I mean, the records of the kings is like a bad reality TV show. I mean, it just, it just gets worse and worse. But despite their unbelief and despite their failure to enter God's rest, they didn't annul the promises of God. The offering to rest in God still stands. That leads us to a fifth opportunity here, right? It just keeps going. And that's in this little word, now. Right now, look at verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see what the writer's saying? It's still available. It's still available, though generation after generation have failed to enter God's rest. And though time after time and year after year you have failed to enter God's rest, it's still available today. That's why the writer's obsessed with today. Today, if you hear his voice, not harden your heart. Jesus is saying today, yesterday, forever, right? It's still available. Religious and irreligious people alike who have failed to enter God's rest, this door is still open. I love the writer calls it, he calls it a Sabbath rest. What's that? That takes us back to, should take us back to the God's rest in Genesis, uh, back to the seventh day of creation. This is God's rest they're invited into that had been available at creation before sin entered the world. We can taste that rest now and one day fully experience that rest in the presence of God. So verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here's the application. Strive to enter the rest. The door is open. The invitation is coming to you today. And the idea of the language is that we are to continually enter that rest. Again, we move in and out of it. we got to repent and come back again. You have to keep going back to the well of the gospel over and over and over again as a Christian. Not to get saved all over again, over and over again, but simply to come back again, to re- recalibrate, get yourself back into the spot you need to be. That's why the gospel is kind of like a water bottle. Right? You, you can't take one bottle of water for the rest of your life and be good to go. Right? Not working. The harder you work, the more you need to drink. Why? Because we become spiritually dehydrated and we move into that self-justification mode so easily, even in doing God's work. Right? We need to keep drinking the gospel. We've got to keep going back again the harder we work. My friends, this invitation is coming to you today to rest in Jesus right from the mouth of Jesus. You see that back in verse 8, the name Joshua. Do you see that? In the Greek, the name Joshua and Jesus are actually the same, Yeshua. And it makes Jesus the true and better Joshua. Think about it this way. Joshua, the son of Nun, was his name. He was a good leader, right? He led his people to the promised land. He even led his people in the band around Jericho, right? And they shouted and the walls came down. And thus they entered a land that they didn't fight to get into. They only had to walk in. But that was not the real rest, right? That was not the deep soul rest God was offering since the creation of the world. As a matter of fact, they would later lose that land and become slaves in a foreign land in Babylon. But 1,500 years later, God sent another Joshua, Jesus, the Son of God. This leader will be born in Bethlehem, go to a cross, and die and rise again. And he would open up the doors for his people to a city they didn't fight to enter. Hebrews is obsessed with the word city, the the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem. It was a city of rest and relationship with God. It's a place that people can now enter in only when they surrender their efforts of self-justification and believe Jesus when he said, it is finished. There's a spot in Matthew 11 where Jesus pronounces judgment on the cities. 
that have rejected him. You say, why did, they re- why did the cities reject Jesus? Because they were seeking to justify themselves by their good works, by their religion. They didn't need Jesus, but Jesus was telling them that they were restless, and they didn't like that very much. That's one reason they got, got him killed. But Jesus, like Joshua, was calling the people to the promised land of rest, but they refused. But there were some who did receive Jesus. There were some who did admit their restlessness. Who were they? They were the marginalized, the broken, the children, as Jesus called them. Listen to this, Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And he turns to the crowd and says, come to me. All you are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you can see the joy on Jesus' face as he looks, he looks from these cities who had rejected him. And he looks around at the broken and the marginalized, the little children as it were. And he has a moment of joy. His moment of joy, he's he's so excited, right? And he turns his eyes towards his followers. He says, come to me, little children. Run to me. Come to me. The Father has given you to me. He's turned the lights on. This is exciting. You see, you understand. It's an old hymn that says, have the lions, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him and him alone, wondrously complete. That's the invitation today. That's the rest that God is offering to us. From the restlessness that is our life, that is our work, that is our family, our friends, our social life, our church life. Everything is so busy. God offers to find rest in him and peace in him today. So as we go to communion, this is what we do. We take quiet. Uh, we, we talk to God on our own. Reflect on the promises that are offered. Please do not miss the offer of rest. Okay? If you don't know Christ today, you've never experienced rest for your soul, never had that engine turned off, of seeking to justify yourself before every other person around you. Come to Christ today. Come to Christ today. Give your life to him. He died and rose again and is there present today, right here with you today, to receive you as as his own. If you know Christ today, you're welcome to take communion, but first let's take reflection. Let's think. Let's let's look at our lives. Let's examine God. Ask God, God, where, where am I restless in my life? Where am I not finding my rest and peace in you? And lay it down, right? Knowing that confident he is for you and not against you, lay it down before him. And when you're ready, and we come, there's bread, there's juice at the tables. We take it in remembrance of him, and we give our offerings as a response of worship as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opportunity to be together today. God, I know this passage is difficult, um, and yet, God, it's, so, it's a topic that we very much need to know and um, very much we need to embrace and apply I pray, God, that you would help us as a church, corporately, to find rest in you, to trust in you. And God, despite maybe the circumstances, the things around us, the things we maybe don't understand, the questions that we have, that God, we would just, we would trust in you. And we would um, acknowledge your power, your might, your goodness and grace to lead us forward as a church, to lead us forward as individuals. Help us, God, to respond to the gracious offer of rest you give us today and help us, in light of that, to labor and work out of a heart of gratitude and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.